0: Welcome to SADS Live, a podcast production from the Sudden Arrhythmia Death Syndromes Foundation, the SADS Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ackerman, Genetic Cardiologist from the Mayo Clinic and Director of Mayo Clinic's Winland-Smith-Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic and the Winland-Smith-Rice Sudden Death Genomics Laboratory. I also have the privilege of serving as President of the Board of Directors at the SADS Foundation. On SADS Live, we answer your questions, talk to international experts in the field, and hear from patients and their families who are living and thriving with these genetic heart conditions. For more information and to find support, visit www.stopsads.org. That's www.stopsads.org. Well, hello, everyone. Happy Friday, February 24, here at SADS Live Foundation. I'm Mike Ackerman, genetic cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and director of Mayo Clinic's Winland-Smith-Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic and Winland-Smith-Rice Sudden Death Genomics Laboratory. And that's just in case some of you may be new for the first time. And if you are, welcome to SADS Live. It's our 112th episode, and next month we'll be celebrating, believe it or not, the third anniversary since we launched SADS Live in the midst of that, uh, the uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic way back now in March of 2020. It's so good to have you. This is one of my most exciting programs that we do uh, every other program or every third program where the program is yours. It's your questions and my attempt to give as good of answers as your questions deserve. And so on behalf of the SADS Foundation, the Sudden Arrhythmia Death Syndrome Foundation, and our CEO, Alice Laura, welcome to SADS Live. Welcome to the SADS Foundation family. And here on this final f- Friday of February, we are wrapping up February Heart Month, as you know, in the United States. The month of February is, is about the heart, uh, appropriately so with Valentine's Day now past. And thinking about all things related to the heart, heart disease, heart awareness. Didn't we have a great program two weeks ago uh, with uh, Dr. Glockenflecken and Lady Glockenflecken and hearing his story of survival as a sudden cardiac arrest survivor and his wife being the one who enabled his survival with rapid activation of 911, doing chest compressions effectively until the first responders arrived. Much has been happening uh, the month of February with awareness and certainly with uh, Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills and his survival on national TV uh, from his cardiac arrest and his commitment with uh, helping with the American Heart Association chain of survival and getting out the word and awareness and and do they, they activate promptly uh, 9-1, do chest compressions immediately Get that AED, and then having AEDs increasingly in the public square, uh, so that it becomes very hard to die suddenly in a community, and uh, and that that effort of making it very difficult to die suddenly in one's community with a rapid AED response a system. And I think uh, we're going to have many, many lives saved uh, because of his close call, Mr. Hamlin, and because of the stories of Dr. Glockenflecken as he, as is his Twitter handle and his wife and so forth. So continue the effort, the effort to increase awareness about the difference between a heart attack from myocardial infarction for where there is an occlusion of the coronary arteries that feed and perfuse the heart muscle that then may or may not secondarily cause an electrical attack whereby the heart goes into a potentially lethal fast rhythm of the bottom chamber called ventricular fibrillation. And as opposed to the individuals who have normal hearts, normal coronary arteries who have genetic heart diseases with genetic glitches in the electrical system that may go immediately to a possibility of an electrical attack of sudden cardiac arrest for which if it doesn't break on its own, and many times that electrical attack does, and that's why a long QT patient faints and then wakes up because that danger rhythm was very short lasting. Uh, But if it doesn't break on its own and return to normal. And if 911 isn't active, chest compression started promptly and the AED retrieved, applied and shock delivered if instructed to do so, then that electrical attack of sudden cardiac arrest proceeds to the tragedy of sudden cardiac death. And so increasing the awareness about the differences Uh, between a myocardial infarction heart attack and an electrical attack and so forth. So continue your efforts. Keep up the great work. This is the wrap-up for the month of the Heart Month Pledge at the SADS Foundation. Go to our website, www.sads.org or stopsads.org if you prefer that mindset. Same place, brings you to the same place. Top right corner, that donate button. And you can do so today and and join in the month-long Heart Pledge. Well, as it's time, and I see people coming in, and some of you even know where I am. So as you know, I have been the last two weeks seeing incredible families, amazing courage, uh, amazing stories down here on Mayo Clinic's campus in Jacksonville, Florida. Conveniently timed for the two weeks, three weeks of February, as we had a major snowstorm yesterday in Rochester, Minnesota. So I've loved it. Stories from a beautiful little girl from Singapore to stories of great courage and great tragedy from right down here in in this part of Florida. And, And we certainly have learned and I've seen firsthand the need for this part of the United States, the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, to build a presence of the Windland-Smith-Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic of Mayo Clinic and SADS Foundation's presence for the families of this region, uh, for those who, in, in cases who want to come uh, see me, for example, may not be able to get to Minnesota for a variety of reasons. So we all, whether it's at SADS Foundation or our program, are trying to be here, there and everywhere for our families to provide hope and healing that you all deserve. And as you know, in our mission statement, to help families live and thrive despite your genetic heart disease, whether it's long QT syndrome or CPVT or Brugada syndrome, or ARVC, or another one where this is your home, we're trying to make the home at SAS Foundation as good of a home as it can be for you, and one that your family uh, finds great confidence in, in guiding you through this journey called life and of living and thriving. So I'm going back to the top to now for the next 30 minutes, tackle your questions and i'll take them in orders i won't skip any i promise and so michelle's is the first question of the day wants to know when a live cardio mobile app for long qt syndrome will be available great question so there are mobile solutions and you know the alive core app full disclosure the knowledge and intellectual property built into that so that it can measure and report the QT interval using artificial intelligence strategies is completed. So the device is already FDA cleared as an atrial fibrillation detector for public use, no prescription required. The difference is in terms of turning on the QTC meter, uh, that did get FDA cleared, now cleared since April of 2022, but that clearance was restricted for now to a physician writing a prescription for that device and that feature. And so from a practical standpoint, it's stalled. So we're working and they, the company are working on how do we get it to the next level of FDA clearance as a consumer product device where it's just on the device is turned on automatically. So a bit of a, a roadblock, if you will, but we press on. And uh, until then, from a device like that, your physician or somebody who knows how to determine the QT interval on their own can look at a cardiomobile dev- derived tracing and look at and measure the QT interval. In fact, we are doing that right now for a family in India and in Singapore where they send the trace uh, to me as we're up titrating their medicine based upon the child's weight uh, and so forth. So we can still get the information, it's just that the AI derived artificial intelligence, the new word that everybody knows now, uh, QTC meter function has not been activated on their consumer product. Um, And hello from the Sunshine State. Uh, You're welcome, Isabel. I appreciate those kind words. And Stella has the second question that, and she was told that the risk for long QT syndrome events drops dramatically after age 50. Is this true or not? I know people dying in their sleep in their forties to sixties. Great question, Stella. Uh, In terms of long QT, we know a lot about the general timing. Now there's exceptions to everything, but in general, Boys are at greater risk of a long QT triggered event between birth and armpit hair puberty, and girls become at greater risk once they transition in and through puberty from the onset of menarche periods to the offset or menopause. That doesn't mean that the risk goes to zero in a woman at menopause or at age 50, and there's some data to say that events could continue, although. In my program, I take care of over 1,800 patients with genetically confirmed long QT syndrome. And of those 1,800, thir- three, four, 65 to 75%, they are waiting for their first episode. They still have never had an episode. And that should be the expectation this notion that the risk is high. And yes, you might note that people are dying in their sleep in their forties to sixties, almost for sure the vast, vast majority of those people dying in their sleep from their forties to sixties. If they weren't diagnosed, they're dying from something other than long QT syndrome. If they were diagnosed with long QT syndrome, that just should not be happening because of long QT syndrome in their forties and sixties, because our treatments overall, are very, very good. Great question, Stella, thank you. Luis from Portugal, I love Portugal. Been there once to Lisbon for a European uh, Heart Rhythm Association meeting and I loved it. And he's wondering what's the specificity and sensitivity of Ajmaline to unmasked Brugada syndrome. Um, Our CAPS, I'm not sure what that one is. Common in patients with Brugada. Your Ajmaline test was negative. Your dad had a positive Ajmaline test, and inconclusive genetic test. Should you get the genetic test? Wow, that's a lot uh, to unpack there. But in general, the Ajmaline drug challenge, which is the Ajmaline is one of the purest sodium channel blockers there is. It doesn't hit a lot of different targets. And because of that, it's better, more sensitive of bringing out the Brugada pattern than the drug we use in the United States, because we don't have ajmaline as an available drug in the United States to do the drug challenge test. We use flecainide or procainamide. So if your dad is ajmaline positive and you have a normal ECG at rest, no Brigada pattern, and that person is negative for ajmaline that's very encouraging. And since your dad had an inconclusive genetic test, there's no point for somebody like yourself who doesn't show the pattern to get the genetic test. The, I so I would not do a genetic test for somebody in that kind of situation. Um, Lauren, another great, great question. Um, I think I know what HHT stands for. Is there any connection with HHT? Uh, but that's a tough one. I think that's hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, but you're really, testing my non-cardiac knowledge, because all of you know, I'm kind of a one-trick pony, genetic heart disease. But I think that's what you mean by HHT and long QT syndrome. All your family members who have long QT also have that entity. And you have uh, a neg- negative genetic test long QT for which my partner, who and she's celebrating her first anniversary at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Kirstie McIntyre, Must have said the diagnosis is correct and start there. Yes, you can really have long QT syndrome, but have a negative genetic test. So, if I know the diagnosis correct, that genetic test comes back negative about 10 to 20% of the time. And in that subgroup of negative genetic tests, but true long QT syndrome, then we are confined to tailoring your therapy the way we had to tailor therapy before the advent of genetic knowledge, genetic insight. And and so I won't change my mind about that as to the, the coexistence of that condition HHT. No, I don't think there's any link. If there is, that link is super, super weak because we've never hardly, uh seen uh that combination now that entity of hht may have its own uh genetic basis you'd have to work with a hematologist or a blood specialist if i have that uh abbreviation down uh correctly again isabel uh first i love the name my niece isabel just had her birthday yesterday i doubt she's watching but happy birthday isabel And, uh, Julie gets the next question. Uh, there seems to be a lot of people conflating. Oh, I like that word, word of the day, conflating dysautonomia and LQTS, long QT syndrome. Is there a connection? That's a really good question, Julie, because this is what happens when you have a, uh, a relatively uncommon condition, genetic long QT syndrome affects about what? One in 2000 humans. And then you add to that the coexistence or the concomitant presence of more common non-genetic entities like attention deficit disorder present in about 7% of all first graders. So that means that 7% of my long QT kids also have equal rights to have that condition of ADD, attention deficit disorder, yet it has nothing to do with long QT syndrome. And yet people start to say, I wonder if my long QT is causing that common condition or long QT and the presence of asthma or twitchy airways when asthma is incredibly common compared to the rare syndrome or the uncommon syndrome of long qt and this is the same thing that's happening with dysautonomia or pots postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome which is one type of dysautonomia that phenomenon of pots is overall a way more common phenomenon or collection of symptoms than long qt and so some long qt patients can also have pots and that makes it a challenge because then we're having to figure out when somebody faints. Did they faint because their long QT entered into the danger rhythm, or was their long QT perfectly dormant and they had a normal lightheaded, woozy vasovagal faint, or they had a pot-mediated faint, or a dysautonomia-associated lightheaded spell? That and so we have to figure out that answer because in one setting. If I were to hear the story and think it was the long QT acting up, then we need to intensify therapy, do something about it, lower the risk further. Whereas if instead we thought that that patient had a non-long QT spell, from whatever reason, then we don't need to change their underlying long QT therapy uh, at all i love that question julie and i did thank you for that email i think you're in the area Uh, unfortunately I, i just won't work to say hello but we'll say hello again by sads uh live so again thanks julie and greetings to tara who must have known somehow that i'm down here so hi there and let's see we have Sad's foundation reminding us to go to that website and donate Now, we have three, four days left in the month of February to do so. And now we have a question. Here we go. Sandra, her son has been diagnosed with ARVC. Remember, that's arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. The general header for all of those type of heart muscle conditions is called ACM now, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, for which one of the ACMs is specifically ARVC. And she's sharing me some good news that her son has a normal cardiac MRI. And she's wondering how common is this and is the first, how, and his first symptom, however, his first symptom was sudden cardiac arrest. So this is a challenge with ARVC. And it's a newer insight, uh, Sandra, than what we had in the past. In the past, we had this notion that arvc needed to structurally show itself with damage of the right ventricle first and then we knew it would be capable of causing abnormal electrical activity of the bottom chamber and the possibility of electrical attacks called sudden cardiac arrest but then our group was one of the first along with my dear friend dr chris Samsarian down under and maybe you're awake on Saturday morning, hello, my brother, Uh, where we reported the possibility that you could have, you could own an ARVC causative mutation involving the so-called desmosome, these particular structural element of the heart cells. And that ARVC mutation could irritate or agitate the heart's electrical system before it caused the heart muscle to change. And that's what we and others have called the pre-myopathic, electropathic expression of the disease. So that's a lot of words to say before the heart muscle changes by echo or MRI, the electrical system could get ticked off. Now, what we know, the good news is though, we can track that. Meaning if that person who owns a mutation has a normal Holter, normal echo, normal MRI, and normal stress test, that person's likelihood of doing sudden cardiac arrest anyway is almost zero. And so this is how some of the ARVC people are found as SCA survivors, but those individuals never had the benefit of getting a test beforehand Uh, that would have showed us that yes the mri looks good but the stress test does not so for our families who are under arvc evaluation and you know you own the marker but all of your tests are normal such that you're not yet showing any evidence that the that the disease is declaring itself your risk is incredibly low we can never say zero but it's really close to zero. So that's good news. Hello from Detroit. Um, and uh, Rachel is saying that autonomic specialist advises against implanted device have worsening dysautonomia symptoms that won't go away, even with removal. You still say that this isn't an issue. Well, I'm not saying it's not an issue. What I'm saying is that situation of the person who has a true genetic heart disease, long QT, CPVT, whatever, and is also wrestling with dysautonomia symptoms needs a really good tag team of their genetic heart specialist and their dysautonomia specialist. And those are almost never the same person. So I may be an expert in long QT, cpvt and so forth i am not an expert in pots or the dysautonomias. i end up seeing individuals with that alter- other diagnosis but we need to work together to know is what i might be proposing to monitor the long qt like you mentioned a device could that be problematic in what it may or may not do to a person's uh dysautonomia symptoms The association of dysautonomia symptoms with the presence of an implanted device, I guess we can only say that that would be viewed as very controversial and unclear what the uh, connection is. Uh, Corey, great, great name, great guy. So hello, Corey. He's wondering for patients who have episodes at night how important do I feel meditation is for calming your heart before bed? Well, there's some good literature coming out, less so specifically about genetic heart diseases, how non-pharmacologic strategies to improve so-called vagal tone or reflex sensitivity metrics from breathing strategies and centeredness efforts calming strategies, if you will, can be helpful. There's good data in the non-genetic entity or the almost never genetic entity of atrial fibrillation where that kind of therapy, if you will, the breathing strategies, exercise uh, as being one of the best pills there is, that is exercise and these breathing efforts like you're mentioning, uh, can be helpful. For other reasons, they can help global health a lot. And there's basically no data that would suggest that these uh, meditation efforts, breathing efforts, mindedness would be aggravating to the heart. So almost no downside. Uh, Nicole given me a long set of paragraphs. I'll see if I can sleuth through that. Uh-oh. I, I don't want to pass because I promise I would never skip. But this one's a long one, Nicole. Uh, my husband was diagnosed as a child with long QT, no genetics back then was done, had a pacemaker put in when your husband was 12 from passing out. They think now that he could have just taken the beta blocker only. So the pacemaker has been turned off for 20 years. You've tested your two children a few months ago, ages eight and 12. Beautiful ages, so much fun. Both were positive based upon how their ECG looked. They are on NataLaw now, never had symptoms, uh, had genetic testing done and a VUS, which means an uncertain variant in a minor gene was found. And then it, unfortunately it cut off for me. It got so long that uh, the app cut it off on you. Uh, I would say your electrophysiologist is doing absolutely the right thing basing things on that ECG. Assuming the QTC has been measured accurately and being precautious by doing beta blocker therapy, I would not be assigning too much weight at this time to a variant that has been called by a genetic test company as uncertain. Uh, That's what a VUS means. When that uncertain designation is in one of the very, very uncommon Genes, And in fact, true mutations in m 4 the gene that she's staying, it's not clear that that is a irrefutable long QT disease gene. Joseph is asking about his son with CPVT. So we've had Brugada already. We've had long QT. We've had our ARVC family and now CPVT. And he's on, it looks like a beta blocker. I can't tell from the spelling and flecainide and even had denervation surgery, has a trach constantly having upper respiratory issues. Can natalol make that worse? And if so, what worse meaning the breathing issues? That's a challenging one. So what I like about the question is, is it shows you how we've come a long way in how we treat CPVT. For that entity, the field used to be way too defibrillator aggressive. Cardiac arrest from CPVT got a defibrillator, fainted, got a defibrillator, positive genetic test, got a defibrillator. Now, almost all of those reasons are unacceptable. Where today the only good reason to go to have a defibrillator to be part of a CPVT patient's care is if they've done cardiac arrest. And even in that setting, if that cardiac arrest occurred when they were before their diagnosis and therefore before treatment could get started. We may not always have to have a defibrillator be part of the therapy. Joseph's son is on more or less, I would say, the current optimal triple therapy of two medications a beta blocker, natalol preferred generally, flecainide as the second medication, and then the non beta blocker antifibrillatory strategy of the denervation surgery. And I think this is one where to weigh the risks and the benefits, in the balance, it would I would be sizing up somebody like your son to say, on triple therapy, what do I think the risk is? If it's super low and the stress test and the Holter are clean, normal, I may ask myself the question, do I have time, room, option to either lower the dose of natalol or potentially stop it and proceed for a while with just fleckinide and the denervation as my treatment combo so that your doctors and you all can assess whether the natalol has has indeed been aggravating the respiratory, the lung symptoms. Now, if I felt the person's CPVT needed triple therapy, then I may try to think about what else could I do to work with the lung specialist to help us decide what are we going to assign blame or, or impact from the treatment strategy for the one entity, your son's CPVT and wondering whether it's aggravating your son's other entity, his breathing issues. Oh, that's such a good question from you. And Cheryl is next in the queue. Um, and I think, we might have to carry over these because the timestamp for cheryl's question is one thirty, and we're at one fifty on my clock uh so uh which is the central standard time clock that we may have a whole host that to carry over to our next meeting but we'll see what alice laura and aaron and and the incredible sads foundation team has set up for the program for two weeks from today march 10th but back to cheryl's question still on CPBT, and now also having that ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The doctor started your child on clonidine for the ADHD, and it only seems to make him drowsy. Wanted me to add it to his afternoon meds, and by 5 p.m. sleeping, not the results I was looking for. School also says kind of out of it. What other options are there? Well, the good news on the ADHD treatment front is there are a lot of ADHD medications, and there are a lot of non-medication ADHD strategies. So here is like another example of the team that needs to get assembled uh, for your son's care. You need to be really confident in your CPVT team, and then you need to have the behavioral specialist, uh, developmental pediatrician, whatever is that person's title, who is focused on your son's ADHD. And as a general, not for your son specifically, but as a general observation in our program, we have published this and observed this repeatedly in my long QT patients who are well treated, my CPVT patients who are well treated, I am not afraid of meaningfully and effectively treating their ADHD and worrying about that that ADHD therapy might trigger or ignite their heart condition. Have almost, almost never seen that. What I have seen is way too many long QT and CPT families have their lives almost destroyed by an unwillingness of the healthcare team to treat Johnny or Sally's ADD, ADHD, and they're a mess a train wreck and they're refusing to treat them out of fear that it may trigger their heart and we would believe and are of the mind that we need to treat all of your son all of your daughter all of the time and not be afraid to address their other important health issues as intentionally intentionally and as effortfully as we're treating their long QT and CPVT. Uh, Daniela, I haven't done it yet, but I love this question. It's not going to be quite the last one, but it would have been a great one to finish on. But you're asking, what are my thoughts on cold plunging, cold showers, or cold therapy in general for patients with type one long QT? And we could argue for any long QTs or any CPVT. Uh, So the reason I love it, Daniela, is one of my most favorite people in the world called my son. I have three boys. They're all my favorites. And then my daughter. But son number two, he is really into uh, cold plunge in terms of part of his training, conditioning, fitness, and has shared with me all of the apparently uh, impressive health benefits of cold therapy and cold plunging and he sat in i don't know the cold plunge tub for i might be wrong danielle so you could tell me if the time is outrageous but i think 11 minutes in a very cold bath of like 45 degrees fahrenheit started at three minutes four minutes now up to eight nine ten or eleven the real answer danielle in terms of that therapy even if it has a lot of benefits is could it be long QT triggering, or CPVT triggering? And the answer is we just don't know, because there's just not enough data points where that's been uh, commonplace. What we do know about cold plunge therapy is there's activation of the vagal tone, so the heart rate can suddenly get slower. Uh, There is a release of adrenaline and endorphins and dopamine. That's part of the the dopamine high, if you will, of cold plunge therapy. And I I think the real answer is we just don't know. But just like we observed uh, in athletes with long QT and said for a long time, you can't do those. Uh, Sorry, you're disqualified. And all the other things we said no to. Uh, my bet would be that in somebody whose long QT or CPVT is well treated, we probably have plenty of margin, safety margin, to do that activity. Just like we have plenty of safety margin to stay and remain a competitive athlete at elite levels. But the but we don't have proof to say yes, I follow. X number of long QT patients who cold plunge weekly and there's never been an episode. Don't have that. Whereas I can tell you I have over 800 athletes with genetic heart disease, including over 550 athletes with long QT syndrome who after diagnosis and treatment have returned and continued in their sport. And that's been a very safe experience, almost, almost never activating their heart condition and to date in 23 years for those athletes zero deaths i'm just unable Daniela, to share you any sort of measurable observation experience with respect to uh cold plunging i love that question though my son i'll have to tell him that i was asked that question and and see what he thought of my my answer And I think um, this will be the final one as we're coming upon the top of the hour. And again, the team will decide whether we press on and start first session of March, the three year anniversary with continuing with your questions or whether they have a program to be determined. Uh, Bill is sharing that he was recently diagnosed at the end of last year with ARVC, was diagnosed through an MRI and does not appear to have the hereditary form or at least the genetic test is negative. And when he was a toddler, he had Kawasaki and that can potentially cause heart damage. Has there ever been a link between Kawasaki and ARVC? No, no such link. Very unlikely that there would be a link unless one were to speculate that if there were a Kawasaki, the viral illnesses that triggers the Kawasaki phenomenon, and the potential irritation to the coronary arteries, not usually the heart muscle itself, uh, with some sort of autoimmune reaction that I suppose you could try to speculate, but I've never seen a connection, have not ever been impressed with one. But one important point about it not appearing to be a hereditary form. Just like long QT syndrome, as we said a few minutes ago, the test is gonna be negative 10 to 20% of the time, and yet you really do have long QT syndrome. And there really may be a pattern that runs in the family that suggests it's inherited. That is also true for ARVC. In fact, if I know you have ARVC and I do the current generation ARVC genetic test, that test comes back negative about half the time, half the time. And if there is a pattern of suggested disease that's running in the family, yes, it's still hereditary ARVC, it's familial ARVC, it's running in the family ARVC, it just doesn't have its genetic explanation figured out yet. And that's where if there is a family pattern, you want to hook up with research labs to search for the truth. And we've been doing that. We just published this week. The newest gene for long QT syndrome is almost never going to be seen in another family. It's super rare. So if your genetic test is negative, you don't need to run out and get tested for this gene. But my point is, this was a family who had running through the family long QT syndrome profile, genetic test negative done 20 years ago, done again 10 years ago, negative for all of the known genes. And my team led by Dr. Wazo and Dave Tester, we searched and researched and did it again and ultimately by genome sequencing and triangulating the genomic profile of those family members who showed the QT problem compared to those who did not found a new gene. And it turns out that this new gene builds a protein and that biology of that protein interacts with one of the known causes of long QT, that of LQT2. My point in all of that is a negative genetic test never means you don't have a disease that could run in the family. It just means you don't have a known findable version in 2023. And depending on how strong the evidence is for a family pattern of ARVC, or of long QT, or whatever entity that's represented by our SADS families. That's where you want your physician team to say, is there somebody in partnership in the research arena who might want to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of hours and even more money to search for your cause? And in our program at Mayo Clinic, we are tenacious detectives. We just refuse to give up the search if that family pattern looks strong enough to help us uh, find that family's genetic truth. And so with that, that's a wrap for SADS Live.